Greetings, friends. Sam Rajovsky here, News Talk 840 KXNT. You're listening to the What's Right Show. Uh, we have thinking about moving the program down below to the bunker just in case the Chicoms attack in retaliation for Fancy Nancy's visit to Taiwan. So I've been talking now about this uh, for a number of days. A lot of you wondering and emailing me, enough about Nancy Pelosi. What is this stupid visit to Taiwan? See, I told you so. If I have an ability, it is to identify big issues before they become big and in everyone's awareness. So this, uh, by the way, landed in Taipei. There are protests on the street in Taipei against her visit. Of course, there are also big signs of welcome. The skyscraper uh, that is in Taipei, the tallest, I think it was the tallest building in the world. I've been to the top of it. It's called Taipei 101. And it was lit up with a sign welcoming Nancy Pelosi, this building, by the way, is so tall that at the very top, they have a giant, massive, round ball, a weighted ball that is suspended in the, uh, in the top of the building inside to act as a counterbalance for wind that blows. When you're, when you're up there, you know, if you've got a fear of heights, it is one of the more terrifying things you will ever experience. So nonetheless... Fancy Nancy is in Taiwan. This whole thing is bungled from top to bottom. Now, I, of course, I support Nancy Pelosi visiting Taipei and not bending to the will of the of the um, of the Chinese. I'm, I'm I'm pleased, of course, that she uh, went ahead and did this visit. It's um, it put her in an in an intractable position. The problem is you're putting China in an intractable position too. And so announcing this visit beforehand and creating this intense, pressure-driven, laden uh, uh, standoff, to me just seems like a silly thing to do all around. The Chinese now holding military exercises in areas around Taiwan. They've deployed amphibious assault tanks and other vehicles. Uh, They are certainly making the type of noise one would expect threatening a land invasion, actual takeover of Taiwan. Now, the, the UN at the same time is saying, look, we're one bad decision away from nuclear war. And I, uh, my response to this, of course, is, well, I, you know, the Chinese got to figure out which they're going to do. <laughs> Are they going to nuke the island with Nancy Pelosi on it? <laughs> No comment. Are they going to do that, or are they going to invade with their soldiers? Typically, friends, a little I know about nuclear war is you don't send in your troops and then drop a bomb. And you probably don't drop a bomb and then send in the troops either, given there is fallout and risk of radiation exposure. You also, look at a map, friends. Can we look at a map, please? Look at where Taiwan is. It looks like a little fly 
on the A money money of China, I'm speaking geographically, right? It's just off the coast. The risk of the Chinese dropping some massive nuclear weapon on Taipei and leveling it, Taipei being the capital, Taiwan, the island country of Taiwan, uh, so close to its own territory seems to me a bit foolhardy. So could they launch an invasion? Yes, they could. I think that's more likely than nuclear war, certainly. But, you know, the Chinese, the, 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 pre, the pressure on China is very simple. President Xi, in his quest to become dictator of China for life, has a giant party congress coming up in just a matter of weeks. And this party congress, this is where all the communists get together, the party leadership. And they have speeches and support, and there is an enormous amount of pressure, of course, on Xi to deliver the goods. I mean, this is a kleptocracy. So all these Chinese political people that are showing up, these are all these are deeply entrenched state operatives that are benefiting from the, well, the government-controlled, quote-unquote, free market that China has to offer. And the economy there is teetering. Like ours, it's having a problem with the housing market. There's, uh, there's, there's certainly some money problems. Their banks are failing. There's widespread fraud. All of this threatens the well-being of the fat cats that, not, they're not the guy in charge, but they're the guys in charge. And so she is in a place where he has to project strength. Getting, I want to say the four-letter word, getting crapped on by, by a congresswoman from San Francisco is not a good look for the premier of China going into a leadership conference where he intends to wrap up and seize more powers. I would add from a group of people that are a little antsy about the entire situation there. That brings me to another thing. I don't think China can risk, I get no crystal ball here. I'm just trying to look around a corner. I don't think China can risk with its economy a little jiggly and a little uncertain. They can't risk becoming an international pariah. And they have to be looking at, at, at Russia, and they have to be looking at, I mentioned last week, it's very important, the study that came from Yale into the, giving some insight into the Russian economy. I mean, it is bleak over there. The Russian economy, okay, it, you know, certainly they have natural resources. They've got a lot of things. Of, they have you know, minerals and, and metals, and not to mention natural gas and petroleum that, of course, the world needs. Uh, but um, but the entire economy, their their manufacturing, everything is in the toilet because of the sanctions they're facing, and and so I mean a, a messy, potentially protracted invasion into in, of a, of a of another country. Uh, I I don't know. It's not something China wants to risk. So th- this thing is extremely fluid. It could blow up any moment. And I think a lot of the things that we're hearing today, it's a series of mixed signals, but, uh, you know, but it is yet another flashpoint in the world, and it affects us. It affects us right here. I mean, it, it, it is, unfortunately, we are, a, we are an interconnected world now. 
And we're seeing what just one little skirmish in a country most Americans didn't know existed a year ago, and I mean the Ukraine, you're seeing what little skirmish can all of a sudden take a, a chain, create a chain reaction that affects us right here living in Las Vegas. And China's a much bigger thing. Look around your, your house right now and tell me everything that's made in China. Well, I'll, <laughs> well why don't you do it after the show? Because um, uh, you're going to need a little bit of time. You can't, you know, cutting our dependence on China is a, it would be a very tricky endeavor. And I don't see that being, ha- and the, the, the other thing is right, the Amer- American companies have, for the sake of the almighty dollar, have been perfectly willing to tolerate genocide in China, political and religious suppression in China, gay rights violations, trans, you think the trans rights are a thing in China? Think again. So all of this to me is, you know, I, I, it could go either way. Maybe China's looked at it and go, hey, the West needs this. We can scoop up Taiwan. There's a doddering old fool in the White House right now. Now's our time to strike. God forbid we wait to do this when Trump is back in office or Ron DeSantis. You know, China's watching that kind of stuff. And this is why, friends, this is why when you elect a weak and pathetic president, the entire world is less safe. All right, quick time out. You're listening to What's Right Show. Sam Rajofsky, be back in just a few minutes. If you've been in an accident, there's no reason to call a sleazy lawyer. It's not just about the settlement check. It's about representing your interests and your values. So call Sam and Ash at 702-820-1234 or visit samandashlaw.com. Welcome back. You're listening to The What's Right Show. Sam Rajofsky here, News Talk 840, KXNT. Uh, look, uh, Taipei, Taiwan, uh, and the Nancy Pelosi uh, visit is not the only bit of international news going on. We, of course, learned late yesterday from the White House that a drone strike took out... Al-Zawahiri, who is the titular head of, or was, the head of Al-Qaeda, number two guy to Osama bin Laden, one of the masterminds of uh, September 11th, and also other attacks on U.S. assets, embassies, uh, the USS Cole, and so on. Uh, I have with us here uh, Robbie Hagland. Uh, Robbie is our... Uh, military analyst, former U.S. Air Force intelligence, um, has been in this part of the world and uh, certainly very knowledgeable on this stuff. Robbie, uh, welcome to the program. Good to be with you. Super. So take me through this. I, I, we have some publicly information, uh, publicly available information uh, available right now, and I know you have to be careful about you know, methods and, and things that you, of course, know and, and are not allowed to talk about. But uh, as I understand it here, this was this was something that was that the CIA and intelligence worked on for quite a while. The, the U.S. left Afghanistan, as we know, some months ago, 
But uh, clearly there are still assets on the ground that were taking pictures. They're walking by the house. They had this guy's routine down to a, I mean, to a science. Uh, they had it all figured out. They built him. I've read they built a scale model of the residence that he was in the safe house. And ultimately, they picked an exact time to fly in a drone that was 50,000 feet up in the air and launch two missiles at him. And, and these are missiles that, as I understand, don't have, a, don't have an explosive component. They've, they, they, they basically, as they get close, these uh, blades come out. From, from the missiles, and they just chop the target up into pieces that will cut through metal, and of course, a human body, no problem. So they got him, and, and with, with no collateral uh, damage or, or injuries, I should say, to any bystanders that's known at this time. So w- w- when you hear this story, I mean, are you, you any, anything here stand out to you, uh, given your experience? Any, anything here that you, I don't know, that, uh, that, that perhaps you look at differently by virtue of your of your experience and background than, than we do looking at it from the outside. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, first of all, one of the, you know, remaining very legitimate targets who's left uh, and and who I, I think that it's, it's good we're still keeping an eye on going after. Um, you know, this is, he always had global ambitions. Um, and so, you know, I, I feel like this is actually one of those strikes that does uh, make us materially safer, even though he was as old as he was. The other thing that sticks out to me a lot is I I come from a signals intelligence background and I, uh, I was almost surprised even with such a high value target that we had enough human intelligence on the ground uh, to, to do some of that work. Um, Because even when I was in Afghanistan, human intelligence is, the scarcest resource in the intelligence community and so you know obviously what do you what do you mean what do you mean by that when you when you say that that human intelligence is the scarcest resource so what we're talking about there is guys on the ground uh and that really our ability to have people on the ground the, the you know the types of cia movies that you see where you have these spies that are that are in there they're getting into it they're getting dirty their hands dirty that's uh, a tiny, tiny fraction of our intelligence capabilities. So I, I think as as we started doing more cyber warfare, as we started doing more signals intelligence, which is just, you know, collecting intelligence from anything that produces a signal, if you're talking about a, a cell phone or a, uh, a push-to-talk radio, anything like that, those are the guys who have grown the most. And you've also seen, you know, what they call imminent imagery intelligence. Uh, so those are going to be the satellites, the drones, uh, and the drones do both signals and, and imagery intelligence. But I, I think what people don't usually get is, well, that has expanded dramatically and our abilities there have expanded dramatically. Human intelligence has kind of been the same. It's, it's, it's very old school. Um, you know, they do have new little toys and new little things that they do, but it's, it's just, it's a much more dangerous job. And so we avoid it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, my question is, it's clearly, I I mean, there's, there was extensive human intel on this. 
there are photographs that you know were taken of the residents that they have shown publicly, which means they've had you know spies collaborators that have that were walking up and down the street take me through this what risk do those individuals have now after this has all gone down i mean if if they get caught they have a ton of risk Uh, i would my assumption is that most of those were human intelligence assets and not agents And, and the distinction there is that it's probably less uh CIA guys trained at Langley who were sending over there to be embedded. And it's more just relationships that people built over the 20 years that we were there. So these are probably people who, you know, survived a long time helping Americans and who are pretty savvy. And, uh, you know, I would expect have the, the trade craft and the skills that they need to have survived. You know, I, I doubt these people didn't just appear after we left. Afghanistan. So these are probably people who are, are very experienced, but I would guess that they're assets and not actual agents of our government. Right. So um, I'm on Al Zawahiri. He has to know that he uh, is a target, right? I mean, there's no doubt that he is the public face of Al Qaeda. He recently uh, put out some videos that are I, I've seen that are available on the internet. So he continues to speak. At the same time, Robbie, what I'm fascinated by is that he and his wife and family move into a upscale neighborhood in Kabul and, and are living in a, 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 a looks like a very nice house. It's a diplomatic quarter. And he's going out on his balcony at you know after morning prayers uh, every day in a very kind of, I guess, you know, in a, in, in a, in a very un, unafraid Right, unconcerned way. So, I, I guess I'm. I guess what what's interesting to me is that he certainly felt safe enough to 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 come out of of hiding and and to live out in the open in a in a in a neighborhood that still has a lot of international people in, in it, and presumably where someone walking up and down the street taking pictures would not stand out. Yeah. Um- uh, I, I think that his confidence probably comes a lot from the fact that he's so embedded with the Haqqani network now. And this is a terrorist organization, unlike Al-Qaeda. Uh, Haqqani is very, very deeply tied to Pakistani intelligence services. And so I would guess that, you know, with kind of the blessing of the Haqqani network, at, there was a lot of info that was given to Zawahiri that he would be safe there. And I wonder if us being out of Afghanistan, uh, paradoxically, made this a little bit easier because we are less dependent on Pakistan and don't have to massage those relationships with their intelligence services as much as we did while we were in country. Yeah. So we were maybe able. We were maybe able to keep this secret from Pakistani intelligence services where that would have been harder to do if we were still in the region. Yeah, understood. I, I think that's really part of the story that fascinates me is that he wasn't living underground. He wasn't living in a, I, I mean, even Osama bin Laden, I will say, where he was in Pakistan was, yes, it was is open, but he never went outside. He was very careful about any any signals. He was, you know, he was basically communicating with the outside world via one carrier, uh, a mule uh, passing, you know, discs and 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 drives around. Uh, ultimately, of course, that's what gave it away because they were able agents were able to track him. 
But even then, the house was uh, largely unremarkable. Um, and here he's just living out in the open in a nice neighborhood, you know, and, and, and just living his life and, and certainly had to have had a degree of false confidence. Robbie, I just got, I've got to run here in 30 seconds, but, um, uh, but what, I mean, anything else in closing that stands out? Um, no, I think that, I think we'll see, you know, in the coming days, this is, I, I think something that's interesting here is we'll probably get more information, uh, even if we shouldn't be getting more information yeah. because Biden really needs a win. Yeah. And no, so I, 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 like zero dark 30. I think, I think, you know, maybe they'll be talking yeah. to Hollywood. I'm, I know. I'm sorry. Back. I've got a, sorry, Robbie. I'm up against a break here. Hard break. I got to run, but thank you so much for joining us. You're listening to the what's right show. Sam Rajofsky. I'll be back right after this. Personal injury law is constantly changing. Uber and Lyft accidents aren't like other cases, but most law firms haven't kept up. Don't trust a new case to a lawyer who's stuck in the past. Call Sam and Ash, 702-820-1234, or visit samandashlaw.com. Greetings, friends. You've come to the right place. You're listening to The What's Right Show. Sam Rajofsky... News Talk 840 KXNT. Common sense conservatism dished daily weekdays, 2 to 3 p.m. Uh, okay, so I, I we had to cut that quick uh, short with, with Robbie Hagland. And, and, and if you missed uh, the interview, uh, we've, we spoke about Alza Wahiri. The strike on the terror leader occurred yesterday in Kabul, Afghanistan. And one thing I, I was asking Robbie about uh, right there before we had to cut to the break was the, the, the entire question of, you know, the, the I guess the, I don't know to say the gall, but the carefree nature by which this guy, who's, you know, top 20 most wanted people in the world by the U.S. government, how he's able to just, stand out there in a nice house in a beautiful part of town. And right as I was talking about this, someone sent me an article here in the New York Post. This is a piece, opinion piece by Pierce Morgan. And it's exactly right. Uh, He goes, look, hey, congrats, uh, Joseph Biden, for getting this done. You know, it's a long time coming. And this a-hole deserved every, you know, bit of this horrific death that he got, getting chopped up by a Hellfire missile. But uh, the question is, and this is the part in it that that echoes what I was saying, quote, but before he goes on, meaning Biden, before Biden goes on too ecstatic a victory lap, I have one urgent question for the president. This is Pierce Morgan asking this. What the hell was Zawahiri doing casually standing on the balcony of a downtown residential house in Afghanistan's capital city? It's been widely reported it was an Al-Qaeda safe house. Uh, This is an overly optimistic description. No, it's exactly right. This guy was standing there feeling like he was on top of the world and untouchable. Now, Pierce, Pierce is a smart guy, and he goes through this article, and he's giving a brazen impunity is disconcerting enough, disturbing questions it raises, you know, to me, it's obvious. The answer to this is obvious. These d- world dictators, these world terrorists, all these people, they 
They are emboldened by Biden's weakness. What, what do you think, what would he be doing? Why wouldn't he be standing on the balcony? He just watched the president of the United States bungle the withdrawal out of Afghanistan, run away with our tail tucked between our legs. And by the way, not a comment on whether we should have gotten out of Afghanistan. My criticism, if you know me and listen regularly to the program, you know that my, my concern is with how we did it. It's the execution of the matter that just absolutely has me flabbergasted. We leave behind I mean, hundreds of millions and billions of dollars worth of equipment. We leave behind military dogs in their kennels. We leave behind our informers. We leave behind our collaborator, collaborators, people that helped us. Certainly, uh, we'll face and have already, I'm sure, faced uh, you know death or worse. And it's against this backdrop that a most wanted terrorist leader can stand out on his road and think it's going to be fine. Now, it ultimately was not fine because with a minimum risk to himself and to our country, Biden was able to take him out. And this takes me to the biggest bungling of all that I don't think Pierce really is getting to, which is in all the, and I wish, you know, Robbie had a run, it's too bad, but with all the, all the, the victory lap, right? Biden's going around going, I'm just the best guy on the planet. Look at what we did. This is amazing. This is great. This is fantastic. And the media, of course, is lapping it up. <laughs> They're just finally a win for their guy. But I'm, my issue is that in part of this victory lap, there's a little bit of, of information. And, and, and what did Biden say? Biden, he's so freaking woke people that he cannot he cannot let this go. And what he, what he said was, and I have it here, I have it here somewhere. He basically tells the press that when they were in the situation room deciding on the strike, Biden would only go ahead with it if he were certain there wouldn't be any collateral casualties. He didn't want other innocents to die. Now, I'm going to tell you, I think releasing that bit of information is devastating to the American cause. Here was one moment where the doddering old fool could show that he was making decisions, that he didn't give a rip. He was going to go in and take the guy out, do what it takes. And instead, he takes this opportunity because he cannot help himself to pander to the weenies that are his base and what does he do he takes this opportunity and tells everybody well i essentially i wouldn't have done it if there were a lot of people around and it was too risky and i would politically potentially suffer repercussions letting your enemies know this i don't care if that was part of this it has nothing to do it's not even an argument about whether it's ethically correct for him to have said that or not, it, it may very well be the appropriate thing. Hey, we don't want to kill a bunch of innocent people because we're Americans and we don't do that. But you don't say that out loud. You don't tell the enemy that all they have to do is next time hide their terror leader in a kindergarten. I mean, right? 
all of this, it, 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 you don't have to be a political genius. You don't, I did not go to any Ivy League schools, friends, okay? Uh, and and I, well, neither, okay, well, neither did Joe Biden, clearly. But of all the quote-unquote qualified, intelligent, well-educated people around him, they can't keep a lid on it because they don't get it. They are running this country like out of some academic classroom uh, in, at Yale. It's theory, it's this, it's that, it's pandering. We've got to use all the right language, can't offend anybody. And the hell with strategy. The hell with the real world. So yes, I absolutely applaud this, you know, and, and think it's glorious that two R9X Ninja Hellfire missiles turned Zawahiri into basically a smoothie. <laughs> it's like, yeah, uh-huh, a smoothie <laughs> right on his balcony. Good thing he said his morning prayers, I'll tell you that. Um, but, I, but I'm just, I, I, no one is talking about how stupid and silly it is that the president's out there advertising uh, under what conditions he went ahead and authorized the strike. You never advertise your conditions. Now, I, I, there's a lot of debate now about what this does for Biden, if this helps him. No doubt the president is touting this. I think, Robbie, right before we got off the call, last segment, again, if you missed that interview, uh, go to the podcast on What's Right Show, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Uh, look, he, he's doing a victory lap. The victory lap, like everything does, will backfire. I give you one example of that. Now, it's going to pick up a certain amount of applause. Uh, the fact that you already have Pierce Morgan, though, immediately criticizing him and saying, congrats, but I think is a sign that, you know, not everybody's buying this necessarily. But, uh, but the mainstream media will give him some points for this. And people, no doubt, will say, oh, well, all right, well, since, you know, we're doing fine, you know, some decision making and, and, and a projection of power. Um, but none of this, this just the, the lack of political strategy and of playing cards close to the vest, I, I, I think ultimately will, will bring the president's approval numbers right back down to earth again. Um, not that this will be a significant bump from any of this um, to begin with, but I, it, 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 it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me. Now that people are considering this and saying out there, well, this is, uh, you know, Biden's having a great week. Meanwhile, meanwhile, and I keep coming back to China, there is stuff that's going to happen. Uh, by the way, Taipei's presidential office was hit by a cyber attack. And Beijing is, vi is <laughs> vowing to fight to the death. Amassing tanks on beaches ahead of a D-Day style invasion of Taiwan. It's fueling a... World War III fear, according to some sources. So this all is, you know, this is a tempest and not in a teapot. And meanwhile, the president took out one aging terrorist and thinks of himself as the next incarnate of Rambo. Go figure. All right, got to take a quick time out. You know how these things go. It's radio. It's what we do. I'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the What's Right Show. Sam Rajofsky here on News Talk 840 KXNT.
Oh my gosh. <laughs> this is not possible. Sam Rajovsky here, News Talk 840 KXNT. What am I guffawing about here? Well, let's see. Democrat consultant Michael Starr Hopkins wrote an op-ed piece in The Hill uh, today. This is fascinating stuff. He believes, wait for it, who does he think is the great hope of the Democrat Party in 2024 in presidential election? Well, <laughs> look no further than AOC. No, this is absolutely, absolutely true. Hopkins explains that Ocasio-Cortez is the future of the Democratic Party, has policies that are based in populism, and for that reason, is less of a personality and more of a movement and a force to be reckoned with in 24 to combat Donaldus Maximus. AOC has been, quote-unquote, of unafraid, unapologetic, and unwilling to bend to the will of Washington, close quote. Now, can you believe if I told you he's half right? So by definition, right, I know for those pessimists out there, he's also half wrong. <laughs> I'll tell you the part he's half right about. Uh, AOC presents authentically. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean, I'm telling you, not, look, I understand and you understand that she lacks substance, right? There's no there there. She's saying all the right words. She's one of these people who's come up in a world where if you say the right thing, you are the right thing. So having substance is of, of it, it, doesn't have, it doesn't have any currency in this modern world of ours, uh, unfortunately, particularly not in the, in the Democratic Party. And that's because tokenism, okay, your identity is your substance. You know, I mentioned this earlier today on Alan Stock when I was with, with my good friend on his show this morning here on KXNT, and we were talking about the insane decision by L.A. County to hire non-citizens, which really means they're going to be able to hire illegal immigrants. And they've said that part out loud. And they're touting it as uh, a measure that will help uh, both in equity and quality of candidates that come into the department. And my point was with Alan is that the two are not, uh, they're not compatible. They're mutually exclusive the way they're used here in practice by you know, left-wing tokenism type people, which is to say that equitable hires based on what somebody looks like, what their, you know, ethnic, excuse me, ethnic background is, has nothing to do with their substance, therefore nothing to do with their quality, their actual quality presents in their capabilities, abilities, so forth and so on. But of course, to the Democratic Party, I then made the point. I said, well, but they, the way they understand quality hires, they understand that not by who they are, what kind of work they do, but what they look, how they look, and what they say. And it's by that standard that AOC, I am not at all surprised 
that a Democratic strategist is saying that she's the great hope of the party. And what did he say? The future of the Democratic Party. Friends, right, because for them, quality of a candidate, be it for a job in city or county government or for, you know, a job in the federal government, like, let's say, I don't know, president of the United States, (laughs) has has everything to do with what boxes they check. Now, when I say she's authentic, I mean that, 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 okay, that Biden... Biden's playing the woke game and he's up there, you know, and whoever's, you know, moving around the marionette puppet, you know, going through the motions. There's nothing authentic uh, uh, and real about Biden. You don't have no idea who he actually is. AOC really is as um, as as she comes across. But she's very charming. And I say this is somebody who's who's met her on occasion. And and I'll tell you, she's a tremendously personable uh, lady. And that's, you know, that, that's, that's catchy, but that's not everything, right? Personality is not everything. So they're taken in by personality. They're taken in by her identity. They're taken in by her ability, her command of social media, which, I, by the way, certainly is important in this day and age. Look, Trump won the presidency because of his command of social media. Only the, the, the difference with Trump is that he was making really great substantive arguments that were absolutely true, grounded in fact, and frankly also in, in, in proven political theory. So, you know, but, but there's absolutely no doubt you have to understand social media now. You, you have to be willing. You can't just produce a, a slick campaign video and put it out there and, hi, my name is Bob and I'm running for Congress and... Just, you know, here's my gun. And I mean, you will make the rounds. But you see the race, for example, in Pennsylvania. And I'll say this to, to illustrate my point. You know, there, uh, Dr. Oz uh, is running against a candidate who essentially is doing everything digitally and, and making little TikTok videos and, and, and Instagram videos of himself talking to the people. And he's, um, he's, uh, he's being very effective with this. Yeah, Fetterman, John Fetterman, and it's uh, this is uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, right? I mean, he he, and and by the way, a lot of traditional folks in politics looking at it, going, "This is not how you run a campaign." And I'm I'm going to say no. I mean, I think in 2022, it's absolutely how you run a campaign. I'm not making any comment on it. I'm just saying that's where the eyeballs are. The eyeballs are on the internet. I mean, the number of people. Older voters, yes. Older voters are watching Fox News and are, are looking at the politicals on cable, yes. But, you know, everyone under 40, even people my age, and I'm over 40, under 50, sweet spot right in the middle, uh, we're we're on our phones. We're, we're digesting things, uh, you know, on social media. We're getting our news on the internet. So if you're putting together quick messages that are, and, that you, and certain people have the ability to connect through a little screen on their phone, and others don't. You know, and it's funny because we all have our strengths and our weaknesses, even some of us, like, for example, I'm an attorney. I, I, I find connecting with people in person, uh, in, in court, let's say, I, I, I love doing that. I enjoy that. I'm good at it. 
and I get to I, here to the studio behind the microphone, and I've learned to get good at this because it's I've gotten comfortable doing it. And and in essence, I I know we're we're having a conversation, and and you and I are sitting here and we're having a a, a chat. Now, social media still is very weird to me, and I'm not at ease with it. To be perfectly blunt, it's not my strength, but it absolutely is AOC strength. And the way Trump used it on Twitter, it was his strength. And they are assets. Biden doesn't know how to, Biden wouldn't know what social media is if it hit him in the face. And that's what I mean by authenticity and the ability to connect with voters is critical. So in that sense, he's, he's the guy who says that AOC is the, um, the greatest thing is right. Here's another way he's right. Uh, when he says she's the great hope of the party, I mean, uh, he's right because who else do they have? <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. You, they, their, their deep bench of talent is one deep. And it's, what, a 20s, 30-year-old gal who used to be a bartender a few you know, weeks ago. Um, so this is, this is just a sad state. And, and of course, again, he's wrong for all the reasons we know we don't need to get into all that. All right, I have to run these... These one-hour shows just go by way too fast. Uh, thank you for being with us, folks. I, I do appreciate our daily time together. It's such a nice and pleasant thing to do, and I look forward to it every day. You're listening to The What's Right Shall be back again tomorrow, Wednesday. Uh, don't miss it. Hopefully, we're not at uh, full-blown war with China, so let's keep our fingers crossed. Have a good one. Mm-hmm.